0: Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Easton. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to open them up to the book of Acts chapter 18 and continue our march through this wonderful and powerful book and uh, just have a very, uh, I feel like a very simple but very appropriate message for us this morning. You know, the the book of Acts, you can go in so many different directions. And as I read the, the remaining verses of chapter 18, everything that began to just become evident to me is the example that the Apostle Paul um, gives us in his ability to disciple people. And, and we're going to talk about kingdom first, a, a call to Christian unity and maturity. And uh, I think it's very relevant to where we are today as a church. And again, the Bible is, is profitable uh, in so many ways. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. And we know Paul, he was, a, he was an evangelist. Uh, he was an apostle. He was an apostle. He had a heart and a ministry specifically to the Gentiles. But something that I think sometimes we forget about Paul, Paul also had a pastoral heart about him. Uh, He loved God's people. He loved to shepherd God's people. You you hear it in all of his epistles as he's writing letters back to the churches that he was able to help plant. Um, He just has this this love for the sheep of God, for the flock um, of the Lord. And so he had very much a pastoral heart um, beyond his evangelistic uh, desires to see people saved, and, and we all know his um, how God used him mightily in those things, but it really began to make me think about what Jesus said in John chapter 10, and so before we kind of dive into uh, Acts 18, I, I think about what Jesus gives us that illustration about a shepherd, and we know that the shepherd is used as one of the most common and probably one of the best illustrations of pastoral leadership in the church, and it began Uh, making me think about how we as pastors and in a community and especially in the Bible bed and how churches operate independently of one another or how they can cooperate with one another at times, and we we hopefully we'll get into that in just a second, but I started thinking about a a shepherd and his relationship to his sheep because we know that shepherds spent... Uh, overwhelming amount of time in the field with their sheep. And so they began to develop a relationship with all of these sheep, and they actually would know them by name. Uh, So some of the characteristics that you would see in a shepherd with his sheep, with his flock, was that a shepherd would know his sheep, and they would know his voice, right? He would lead them. And so he would make sure that he's leading them and they would follow. And he would lead them to, to good pasture land so that they could feed. He would lead them to, to water. You, you may be hearing uh, Psalm 23 run through your mind a little bit as we, as we talk about this. And so he leads them beside the still waters and he restores my soul. And so the Lord obviously being that picture of our ultimate shepherd. But he was also there to protect his sheep from, from danger. And he, and he loved his sheep. I mean, there's, there's classic examples in the scriptures. And I, and I don't know any modern day shepherds, but they are still uh, prevalent throughout the world. And, and I understand that shepherds have a, they become to grow attached to their animals and they begin to love them. And they, again, they know them by name. They give them personal names. And, and so they spend a lot of time with their sheep. And so obviously, a shepherd knows his flock and the flock knows his shepherd. The flock knows their shepherd. So having said that, Jesus gives us this illustration, and when he's given us an illustration in John chapter 10, he starts talking about the sheep pen. And this is where it really kind of came alive to me. So if you know anything about um, ancient uh, Near East and, and even up, up until today in modern agriculture and um, with, with uh, shepherds who tend their flocks in the open country today, many times what they will do is that multiple shepherds, two or three, will come together at night and they'll build a pen for all of their sheep to come together because it makes more sense that, hey, we can protect our sheep more effectively if we bring all of our sheep and we build up some type of a structure a makeshift structure or some type of fencing or something like that where we can get all of our sheep gathered together and then they all kind of commingle in there throughout the night and the shepherds keep watch over the sheep and, of course, one stands by the gate and that's where, you know, you get the language where Jesus says, I am the door." Um, and I am the gate, and those kind of things. And so Jesus has given us that illustration of being our good shepherd, okay? But here's what's interesting. Even though they come together, they may, they may partner as they share a, a pasture land together, they may share fresh drinking water together, or they may come together to, for protective purposes. So we all gather together, and once the sheep are in the sheep pen, they're all mixed up together. You really can't tell them apart. But here's what's beautiful is that according to what I understand is that the sheep uh, know their shepherd's voice. And so as all these sheep are commingled in the pen in the morning time when the shepherd steps up and he calls his sheep, that particular flock will recognize their shepherd's voice and they will follow him out of the sheep pen as he begins to lead them to their next destination. And so the sheep automatically know how to identify their shepherd's voice, and that is when they begin to separate and they begin to move on. And I started thinking, you know, that's a really cool illustration about what we see here effectively as Paul's example is is to the local churches that he's involved in in the book of Acts. And I think it's it's a call for you and I today to really begin to look at where we are as a church and really collectively as the culture of the church exists right now in the Bible Belt are we, more of a, are we more of a culture of competition? Or are we more of a culture of cooperation? And that's really what I want to get down to when we start thinking about the call for kingdom first mentality. And I think this is very important. The call for kingdom first mentality mentality—it's a call for unity and maturity. And so you'll see some of this start to surface as we finish up. The book of Acts chapter 18. So kind of keep that shepherd illustration in your mind as we move through this together. But I'm going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 18 in the book of Acts and we're going to meet some new characters. Uh, We met uh, Aquila and Priscilla last week and they're going to be still part of this story and we're going to meet actually a new character as well. So in verse 18 it says this, it says, after this Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at century he, cut, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. So Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and it says, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Now, that's, that's interesting. You may want to take note of that. He said, no. He said, no, I'm not going to stay for a longer period. But he taking leave of them. He said I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. And then went down to Antioch. Which was his home church. That Remember that was the launching church. Of the mission, uh, missionary journeys of Paul. And after spending some time there. He departed and went from one place to the next. Throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Strengthening all of the disciples. And so Paul is going back and forth to the churches that he planted to strengthen them. We see this as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. Now look at verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So somewhere along the way, he was introduced to Jesus Christ in Alexandria. And so now he's been, apparently he's been saved. He's he's trusted Christ. And so he's out now preaching um, the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus." So the first thing I want to share with you this morning is that gospel work must always be kingdom first, okay? Gospel work must always be kingdom first in the spirit of unity and cooperation, never competition. Very important that we understand this and we see this, okay? Now this goes all the way back to the teachings of Jesus, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, and some of you have probably memorized this verse many times, but Jesus in Matthew 6, he's talking about not to be anxious with all the cares of the world. But he said what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. So I'll take care of the rest. Your job, your goal, your focus, your perspective is to seek the kingdom first. And so we see that modeled in Jesus, and Paul obviously had, had been trained with that. He had a revelation from the Lord. He knew very well what Jesus taught. And so we see that modeled in Paul's example as too. But let's think about the Apostle Paul. By this time, now, now remember, we're reading through the book of Acts like it just takes a couple of months. There have been many years that have passed by uh, by this time. He's been on, this is his second missionary journey. Uh, you know, he stays in uh, Corinth for 18 months and so we see that, that these things are not just happening very quickly. And so this is a lot more drawn out than we understand it sometimes to be. And so Paul, by this time, he had developed a reputation. Let's, let's don't miss that. Paul had most certainly developed a reputation. And he had opportunities probably everywhere that he went to begin to gather a following. He probably had opportunities to begin to build his own gospel brand, if you say. You know, think about if he's, if he's living in the 20th century, if he's living in, uh, in our day and time, you know, Paul would have his, he could have had his own YouTube page by now. Right? He could have had millions of followers where he's building the Apostle Paul brand and everybody wants to hear what Paul has to say about particular theological and doctrinal discussions of the day. And it would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to, to, to feed on the reputation that he was gaining throughout his ministry and really begin to, to gather a following of people around him by this time in his missionary ministry. But here's what we see about Paul that's so, ama- that's so amazing. See, the church at Ephesus, they're begging him to stay. They're they're warning him. That's the synagogue there at Ephesus. They're warning him to stay longer and stay longer. He says, no, I'm going to have to leave. He had another thing to do. He was being led by the Holy Spirit to go somewhere else. But he left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus, and he went on. But he could have easily become proud. And started building this reputation or this this gathering around him. But Paul had been humbled enough by the Lord. And this is where I think uh, Paul had to suffer so much under the hands of unrighteous men. We know how much Paul suffered. I mean, he was beaten and, and shipwrecked and, and left for dead, and he was uh, you know, robbed and persecuted and, and imprisoned, and all of these uh, terrible sufferings and persecutions that Paul went through. And, and the Lord told Paul when he called him in the ministry, he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I think that was intentional because the Lord wanted to keep the apostle Paul what? Humble. Because Paul, beside Jesus Christ... The Apostle Paul is the most well-recognized well Christian in all history, right? And probably had as much impact um, than anyone else in the first century uh, than any other Christian than, that has ever lived. And so we know God used him in a mighty way, but God had to make sure he was humble so that these things wouldn't begin to get to his head. And Paul had a kingdom-first mentality. He knew that it wasn't about him. And we see this repeatedly in the example of Paul and in the writings of Paul. He really didn't care who got the credit as long as the gospel was preached and lives had been changed. His first concern was for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. I really believe that all the problems in church begin when arrogant men, conceited men, begin to take credit for themselves. I really, if you look at if you look at all the terrible things that have been done in the name of Christianity and all the terrible church splits that have ever happened, and all of the terrible downfalls of Christian leaders that have ever happened, at some point along the way, Christian men or Christians in general begin to take credit for something that only God can do. And Paul, I think, understood this. And so that's where we get into this, we get into these denominational turf wars, unfortunately especially here in the Bible Belt, right? And we're so firmly gripped in our denominational background that, that sometimes we forget that there's a greater cause outside of Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Catholic or whatever it may be. We, we get into jealousy and competition. You know, it's one of the, the saddest things that I ever experienced as a church planner. Whenever you're a church planner coming into a new community, and I'm telling you, they are just so defensive and threatened, like, oh my goodness, here comes a new church. What are they going to do? They're going to steal our what? They're going to steal our sheep. That's what they're afraid of. Instead of seeing it as a work of God, as an opportunity, again, we're not out here trying to shuffle uh, sheep around. We're not here, we're not here to steal anybody else's sheep. I'm not here, you know, and that's that's unfortunately what I see many times in the Christian church. What we see happening is that there's a lot of transfer growth back and forth. You know, people get dissatisfied or disgruntled with this church, and they just move on to. Another church, or maybe, maybe people get tired with this church because it's too traditional or it's too old or whatever it may be. So we got to shuffle sheep and go to the newest church and the latest church, the more appealing church, the, the hipper, the trendier church or whatever it may be. And, and when you look at those things, we're really not reaching the lost as much as we're just shuffling the deck. And and that's very unfortunate, and I think Paul understood this, and I think that's why Paul was very intentional to make sure in his model of example and in his teaching, he was like, listen, this is not about us. This is about the kingdom first, and we've got to make sure that we're dealing in a spirit of cooperation and unity and we're not competing against each other. And so that's what it's all about. Paul wrote it in Ephesians 4. He couldn't have said it any better, and I want to share it with you. Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, and again, uh, we see this here. This is where the church at e- Ephesus is just in- introduced to us. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he goes on. And later we're going to meet uh, Apollos as we-, we met him in just a second, and he's going to end up in Ephesus as well. And so this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and listen to what he says about church unity. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, there's that word, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, listen to this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is why, listen to what he says, because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all amen and so there there you have Paul's encouragement to the church in Ephesus and also the encouragement to you and me today that he is calling us to unity, eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit, the bond of peace, because, again, we have to understand ourselves in the greater context of the body of Christ, that we are so united around so many essential things that many times we let our differences get in the way, and it ends up hindering the greater work of the kingdom around us. The pure simplicity and unity of the early church is something I believe that has been lost in our more modern traditions. We see it in denominationalism. And look, I'm not anti-denomination. You know, some people say, well, what what kind of church are you? And we're like, well, we're non-denominational. They're like, well, you don't know who you are then, right? You're just, you don't even know who you are. You're just non-denominational, right? No, we do have distinctives. We have essential beliefs. And I encourage you guys to read those if you're not familiar with them. They're on our website. But... I'm not anti-denomination. I mean, I've been part of a Methodist church. I've been part of Baptist churches. I have great friends who are in the Presbyterian faith, all of these different things. But also, again, like I said, many times we see how this denominationalism, and it's very rigid many times, it ends up bringing more division than it does bringing us together and uniting us around the greater purposes of building the kingdom of God together. Now, let me back up and say this. I'm just as zealous about essential doctrine as anybody that you will ever meet. One thing that you, you will have as long as I'm here and, and God gives me the ability to be in a position of leadership here at Christ Church and, the, and our elders will agree with this, we will not compromise on the essential truths of the gospel. We will not compromise on the essential doctrines of the faith. And many denominations are starting to compromise And those are areas where at some point you have to divide with other denominations or other people, uh, other churches, because when they start to compromise the essentials of the faith, we can no longer be in fellowship with them. Okay? But what I am saying is this. Many times we can find that there is much more that unites us as believers. There is much more that brings us together than that which divides us. Think about it. Most of your mainline denominations here in America, at least for the most part... They still uphold things like the authority of Scripture and the deity of Jesus Christ, and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to see lost people saved and come into the God's kingdom. They want to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified above all else. And so many times I think that we forget that if we focus on what unites us rather than what separates us, then we can avoid all of this unhealthy division in the body of Christ, and we can refocus on our greater mission and perspective, which is to seek first the what? The kingdom. And I've told you guys this, and I'll just say it again. If we're being missional in our, in our own personal lives, you may work downtown, you may work in Collierville, you may work in Jackson, Tennessee, but if you're engaging people and you're leading people to Jesus Christ and you're sharing the gospel, that's all that we're asking us to do. I, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day if they end up becoming a member of this local church. Now, if you're, if you're reaching people and engaging people and you bring them to church and we love on them and we get a chance to disciple them in the faith, absolutely, that's 100% a praise to the Lord and, and we will take them and we welcome them gladly. But at the end of the day, guys, nobody's going to be in heaven wondering, what did Christ's church do? It's going to be about the what? The greater kingdom, what was the greater kingdom work and focus is all of us as believers have opportunities to make an impact and a difference everywhere that we go. That's what we're going to be responsible for. How did we advance the kingdom, whether they ever became part of our local church or not? I do believe also, just as a side note, that as we see the persecution and the marginalization of Christians in our culture become increasingly more evident, one thing is going to happen. It's going to force us to come together. It's going to force Christians from all different denominational backgrounds and walks of life. It's going to eventually force all of us, those who are true believers, the remnant of God, those who are unashamed of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, born-again believers. Look, there's going to come some point in this culture as things continue to get worse and more difficult for us to live out our faith in this world, it's going to force us to come together. And I think that we're beginning to see some of that right now because think about it. That's what it was like in the early church. They were under tremendous amounts of what? Persecution. They were under tremendous amounts of persecution. And so they needed each other. They leaned on each other. They depended upon each other. They prayed for each other. They helped each other out. They shared everything in common. I think that we're going to begin to see more of that uh, today in our culture as well. So that's the first thing. We, we, we need to express the, the spirit of unity, not competition. We're not in competition with anyone, right? We, we should be working in cooperation with other churches. And we'll talk a little bit more of that in, in, in just a second. Number two, gospel work must emphasize personal discipleship, reproduction, and spiritual maturity. And I think this is so very important. Gospel work must emphasize personal discipleship, reproduction, and spiritual maturity. Now, let's remember Paul. I know he's a hero of the faith, guys. But at the end of the day, Paul was just a man. He was a man filled by the Holy Spirit of God. He was a man zealous for the glory of God. He was a man who understood that his time on earth was short. He wanted to make the most of it. And I think the Apostle Paul, for the most part, made the most of his short-lived life as he died eventually under the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero. But Paul understood that it was urgent that he made the most of his time on this planet. So he set the example. Think about what Paul did. He personally invested in these people. Already in the book of Acts, think about who we've met. We've met Barnabas. We've met Silas. We've met Luke. We've met Timothy. Now we've met Priscilla and Aquila. We met Lydia just a few chapters ago. Think about all the people that Paul has personally invested in as he's gone through these different communities and planted churches and and shared the gospel and making disciples on a personal level. He spends 18 months in Corinth alone. He understands that discipleship takes time. Okay, it's not a fly-by-night uh, cause. Discipleship, it does take time. But here's what Paul's doing. He's intentionally training other people, listen, on a personal level. And that's, this is where it removes people like me from your responsibility as everyday Christians because God is calling each and every one of you to do this on a what? Personal level. See, this is a corporate public setting. This is not necessarily a personal level. And that's why small group Bible studies and prayer groups and home groups and all of those smaller group settings, guys, one-on-one accountability, those are so vital to the Christian faith because that's where discipleship really takes place. Discipleship really doesn't take place right here. As much as I love this and as important as this time is, it's not really discipleship is where it takes place. So what what is discipleship? Basically, here's what Paul was doing. He was teaching people the words of Jesus, how to discern the will of Jesus, how to walk in the ways of Jesus, uh, and how to walk with Jesus personally and to exercise the wisdom of Jesus. So these are all of the things that Paul is teaching each and every one of these individuals. And here's what's so beautiful. Paul was not threatened by any of these other people that he was discipling. Do you know why? He was not worried that they were going to to become more popular than him. Guess what? He was counting on it. He was hoping that everyone that he discipled became a greater witness and a greater evangelist to him, a greater missionary that he did. He was counting on that because Paul knew that he was replaceable. And that's why we see him setting the example in his missionary journeys is that everywhere that he went, he poured into people in such a way that he knew that if he removed himself out of the situation, everything would what? Everything would continue to go. Everything would continue to operate the way that he set it up because that's the way he discipled people. He said, I'm replaceable. Something may happen to me. I may not be able to make it back to Ephesus. I may not be able to make it back to Corinth. So I've got to make the most of my time as I pour into people and I've got to reproduce them in the image and likeness of Jesus, teaching them how to be a disciple because I'm counting on them to become greater witnesses and disciple makers than I am. That's the beautiful picture that Paul gives us. But let me think think about what it requires to really disciple people on a personal level. It requires humility. We've learned that. It requires a tremendous amount of honesty. Guys, if you're going to disciple somebody, you've got to be honest with them. That's very hard for us to do. It requires vulnerability. If you're going to spend time and invest in people spiritually, you're expecting them to be vulnerable with you, right? Right? Which in turn means that you have got to be willing to be what? Vulnerable with them. I think that's one of the biggest hang-ups in why we don't make disciples. Right there, vulnerability. I think we're too afraid to become what? To become vulnerable. We're, we're too scared to really be honest with people and really show our weaknesses because that's insecurity or maybe we're threatened by somebody or whatever it may be. Maybe we think they're going to use it against us. I've seen that happen too. But at the end of the day, if we're going to be part of the disciple-making business, we've got to be honest and vulnerable. We've got to be patient, full of grace. We've got to be willing to sacrifice, guys. It is hard work, but it is worth it. And I want you guys to see that. So people that are unable to do those things, they're never going to really be discipling anybody. They're going to keep everybody at a distance. They're going to keep everyone arm's length away. But here's what Paul understood. He believed in the power of spiritual reproduction. He believed in the power of growth by multiplication. How many of you accountants out there know the difference between adding to your bank account and your bank account being multiplied? Makes a big difference, right? You can add all day long, but when that bank account starts hitting multiplication, it grows exponentially. And that's what Paul understood. And so he had an impact on Priscilla and Aquila in such a way. Think about this. As soon as he left them at Ephesus, okay, he moves on. He's on he spent about 18 months with them, so that's a considerable amount of time. That's about as much time as I've been here with you, a little over 18 months as your pastor now. And Paul spent about that much time with Priscilla and Quilla. And now he takes them to Ephesus. They're in Ephesus. They hadn't been there but one Saturday in the synagogue. And they hear this man, Apollos, preaching a mighty sermon in the name of Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They automatically take him aside and say, hey, man, let let us teach you a few things more accurately. We hear what you're saying. You're right on track. But we want to disciple you. We want to invest in you. We want to engage and build a relationship with you and help you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they modeled discipleship with Apollos right away. Now let's talk about this gentleman, Apollos, for just a second. Interesting man. He was a Jew from Alexandria, very well educated. We know that Alexandria in that day was known for its... Uh, ancient library. It was known for uh, schools of philosophy, universities, um, very uh, highly civilized community there in Egypt. Uh, so Apollos was very educated. He was very fervent in spirit. He, had, he, had, he was on fire for God. We, we catch that in, in the passage, right? This guy, he's on fire. He's on fire for the Lord. He's, he's preaching boldly in the synagogues. He's, he, he has courage. And so he has this powerful personality, so Apollos is a strong personality, and I want you to keep that in your mind for just a second because we're going to get there in just a minute about how this ends up playing between Paul and Apollos a little bit later in the church at Corinth. But he has the gift of preaching and public speaking, and so he's a true follower of Jesus, so he, he knew Jesus. He's teaching accurately all that he knew, but here's what's so important. It says he'd only heard of the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila are, healing, are hearing him preach this, they're obviously encouraged by him. Now, notice what they do. They don't rebuke or correct Apollos in public. Did you catch that? What did they do? They pulled him aside. They waited till after the service, after the time of teaching. They probably, just like a good church member would do, they invited him to lunch, right? Hey, you want to come eat some lunch with us after church service? Let's sit down and let's talk. So they they didn't publicly humiliate him in any way, but they met him where he was. They tried to get down on a personal level with him in a very non-defensive setting. They brought Apollos aside, and they began to teach him more accurately the things about the way of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now look at what's happened. You got Paul. He's invested in Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them and goes on. They stay in Ephesus. Now, who are they investing in? They're investing in Apollos, and now they're making disciples of Apollos. And then it says, not soon after that, look at what it says. It says, when he went, uh, Apollo, excuse me, Apollos, in verse 27, he wished to cross to Achaia. So he wants to go back to Corinth, in the, in the area of Corinth. It says, the brothers encouraged him to welcome him there. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing through the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So look at what just happened you got Paul. He's invested in Priscilla and Quilla. Now they turn around and they spend time with Apollos and they they teach him more accurately about the gospel. And then Apollos goes all the way back to Corinth and now he's making an impact on the believers there in Corinth. And so you think about it. Paul not only had spiritual children, but he had spiritual what? Grandchildren. Now let me ask you this question. How many of us can say... That we have either spiritual children, those that God has allowed us to reach with the gospel, or maybe disciple in the faith, invest in spiritually. But not only that, how many of us have what? Spiritual grandchildren. Now, I'm not a grandfather. I think we got some grandparents in the room. From what I hear and understand, it gives most grandparents greater joy to see their grandchildren growing up than it did their kids, right? Is that true? See a few people nodding out there. Because the grandparents can always love them and spoil them and do all the things they never could do with their kids and then send them right back to mom and dad right and it's all good so I understand that special relationship that a grandfather or grandmother has with their grandchildren but here's the thing guys I believe it gave Paul just as much joy to see his spiritual children in the faith people like Priscilla and Aquila and Luke and Timothy and Silas and Lydia and those people he began to see them um, following his own example of discipleship and investing in people like Apollos and then Apollos is going back to Corinth and he's reproducing Producing believers and helping them grow to maturity there in Corinth. So now Paul not only has spiritual children, he not only has spiritual grandchildren, he has spiritual great-grandchildren. And on and on and on it goes. And I just want to encourage you guys this morning. We all should desire this. Everybody in this room should desire to not only have a spiritual child that God has led into your life that you're investing in, Okay? Maybe some of you maybe need to seek a spiritual parent out. Put yourself underneath somebody who's a little further along in their faith than you are. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Discipleship is not one way, it's what? It's two ways. You can't be discipled unless you're willing to be discipled. So I understand th- we're both responsible in this transaction, but at the end of the day, guys, we should have greater desire to see spiritual children and grandchildren and great grandchildren so that we can look back years from now and say, you know what? That person that God allowed me to disciple for years, I'm seeing them be a mighty witness for the Lord, or maybe that person got called to ministry, or maybe this person is an evangelist and he's leading people to Christ, and you see your impact and your effect on their life having. an effect on many other generations of people of faith. That's what it means for spiritual reproduction, spiritual maturity, and growth. You see, Paul didn't care about getting the glory for himself. He found more joy in seeing other people follow the example of discipleship and reach those, that next generation for the Lord. Here's the thing. We can get there Christ Church, we can get there. And I really believe that we will get there. I really believe that that God is getting us to preparing us for a season where we're ready to really get serious about our discipleship again. It takes time. It's hard work. I promise you, but it's worth it. And here's our last thing, number three. Gospel work must always boast in Christ Jesus above anyone else. Y'all turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3 real quick. 1 Corinthians 3. That's why I love the book of Acts, because when you start reading Paul's epistles, you begin to see some of the same names pop up. And 1 Corinthians 3 is one of those places where you're going to recognize Apollos is coming back up. Now, by the time Paul is writing his letter back to the church in Corinth, let me tell you what happened. Apollos had become a very popular preacher. Remember, what kind of personality did he have? He had a very strong personality. He was a very... A uh, strong public speaker. He was a very dynamic preacher. He, I can just imagine Apollos as having just one of these very dynamic personalities and people were just drawn to him. And so he made a big impact there in the church at Corinth and eventually went on to the church at Ephesus and did the same thing. But now when Paul's writing back to the church at Corinth, he understands that Apollos has had a great amount of influence there at Corinth. And unfortunately, what happened, like it happens in so many churches, you begin to see factions of followers, they begin to form. And so people, disciples and church members were putting their identity in men, okay, rather than Jesus Christ. There's nothing new under the sun. We see it happen today in the very same way. We're going to get to that in just a second. So look at 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to what Paul says as he back to the, he's writing back to the church in Corinth. He says, I, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. For you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul... And another says, "What? Well, I follow Apollos. Are you not be, excuse me, are you not being merely human?" Now listen to what he says. What is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, "I planted Apollos watered, but what? God made it grow. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Look at what Paul is doing. He is squashing this division in the church in Corinth saying, if you want to be divisive and you want to be, um, you know, separate yourselves to be followers of men and followers of strong personalities such as Apollos or Cephas or myself or whatever it may be, he's saying, don't forget, God is the one that makes it grow and no man is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field, God's building. Look at verse 21. He says, so let no one boast in men. Now, there could have been something going on here about baptism. And I'm not going to get into that very extensively this morning. Because remember, when, when they met Apollos, when Priscilla and, Mila, Priscilla and Aquila met Apollos, remember, he didn't know the baptism of, of, to be baptized in the name of Jesus yet. He knew, he taught accurately about the gospel, but he was still associating himself with the baptism of John the Baptist. And there's some church traditions and some historians and scholars believe that when Apollos got to Corinth, that maybe he was teaching a little bit of a different interpretation about baptism. And so, because Paul uh, says this a little bit later, and he's talking about how he didn't baptize, uh, I think it's back in in verse 1, I mean, in chapter 1, actually. Back in chapter 1, he says, uh, Why is there quarreling among you? Um, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see what he's doing? So he brings up baptism to the church of Corinth. I think there was probably some, some, some um, division among the teaching between Paul and Apollos, possibly, when it comes to baptism. Now, let's, let's think about that. It's the same thing today, right? Many people base their entire denominational system around what? Baptism. They say you've got to be baptized in our church underneath the authority of our leadership in order for you to be saved. Some people teach baptismal regeneration, meaning that you've got to actually get dunked underneath some water, and that's the moment that you are what born again. Of course, we don't teach that. We don't believe that there's any biblical grounds or basis for that. But some denominations base their entire doctrine based on baptism alone. Now, here's what's interesting about this church, and I appreciate it about this church. Now, I was trained in, as a Baptist seminary. If you ask me what, is the, what I believe is the most effective mode of baptism, I believe it's immersion. I believe that you know when you immerse somebody under the water, it's a picture of the death, burial, and what? Resurrection of Jesus. I think that's why I prefer immersion over other forms and modes of baptism. But you know what? We've had different types of baptism right here. If you want to be sprinkled, that's fine. You can still see a picture uh, in the Scriptures from sprinkling of baptism. If you want to be be poured, if you want the water to be poured on you, that's fine. Somebody may have a phobia of water, whatever it may be. It's okay. So we're not going to be so dogmatic on the mode of baptism. The key is going to be, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you been born again into the body of Christ? And then baptism is just an act of what? Obedience to follow through with your profession of faith. So as long as we understand what baptism is, I'm not as hung up on the mode of baptism. So you can see how here in Corinth that could have been what was going on. Maybe Paul and Apollos got divided over the way they were baptizing or the meaning of baptism or some of those things. But we know that Paul still commended Apollos. So, so he was still very much um, in, in, in good standing with the church. Okay, but here's what I want to get to. All of this dissension and division that had happened in the church basically came down to this. It was the danger, it was really two dangers. There's two dangers here, and I'm going I'm to wrap it up. The first danger is when people put man up on a what? On a pedestal. And all you're doing whenever you put a man up on a pedestal is you're setting him up to be what? to be knocked down. That's all that you're doing. And another thing involved with that is that people are so quick to identify and put their, not faith, but but they begin to really identify with strong personalities, and they begin to become followers of people instead of followers of who? Of Jesus Christ. And I've seen it happen time and time and time again. And it's so very dangerous. As one author said, he said, don't put your pastors and elders up on a pedestal where they can be knocked off. Put them on your prayer list so they can be lifted up. I like that. Because, guys, at the end of the day... There's so many dangers. That's one danger. And then there is a danger from Christian leadership and pastors. Remember, going back to that whole shepherd idea that I shared with you at the beginning, it's easy for pastors and shepherds to become puffed up with pride, to become possessive and think that all of a sudden people are here because of me. They're here to see me. They're here to hear me. And that's a very dangerous place for a Christian leader or a pastor to be. I can think back on many of my dear, dear Christian friends. I have a lot of Christian friends in the faith right now who are not associated with the local church at all. You know why? And I can say this. I think it's because at some point along the way, they put their faith in men. And what did those men do? Let them down. Moral failure, some type of ethical failure, some type of you know whatever you see. How many you all probably have experienced it in some form, fashion, or another. And they got so disillusioned and so heartbroken and disappointed with the men, the leadership, and the people in the church that they just said, "You know what? If this is the way that's going to be, then I'm just going to squash it all together. I don't even want to be part of a local church. I'm just going to kind of go and do my own thing." But guys, we don't have that right. Amen. Because Jesus is the one who established the local church. He says, I will build my church. Now, as imperfect as it is and as many times as we hurt each other and disappoint each other and there are moral moral failures and leaders will fall and all those things are true, but that still does not give us the right to just say, to heck with the church. I'm not going to do anything with it anymore. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. That's not what God is calling us to do. We're either going to be part of the solution or we're going to be part of the problem. And so here's what I want to wrap up on as our, our worship team comes back up. Men come and go. I hope that I'm here a long time. Amen. I do. My wife and I love this church. We're grateful that we're at this church, and I hope and pray if, we're, if I'm able to retire at this church or whatever, I'm, I'm completely satisfied with that. But I'm going to tell you so there's going to come a day when I'm going to be gone. Christ church will what? Hopefully it'll still be here. Because Christ church, the local church, is so much bigger than any one man. It's so much bigger. Even I think about Brother John Latimer who's been here from the very beginning to see this church from its infancy, and he's been here over 30-something years. And I bet you, I know Brother John's probably not in the room right now, but I bet you 100% that if he knew that if he were able to go to his grave knowing that this church is thriving and moving and working and advancing the kingdom of God, that he would be more satisfied than any man on the face of the planet to know that this church carried on Beyond him. Because men come and go. Jesus will remain. Men will disappoint you and let you down every time. Jesus will never let you down. Men will mislead you. Jesus will never lead you astray. Men can become proud and self-serving. Jesus, he's always humble and willing to serve. So I want to encourage you guys to never get caught up in following personalities or getting caught up in following individual preachers or putting people up on a pedestal because you're only setting them and yourself up for disappointment. Here's our primary goal as we think about our, our entire uh, message today. Here's our primary goal. You ready? Our goal is to point other people to who? To Jesus. Our goal is to boast and to brag about Jesus, to make much of Him. Our goal is to lead others to Jesus. Our goal is to make disciples of Christ, right? We're not making disciples of ourselves. We're making disciples of Christ. We're leading, introducing people to Jesus, teaching others the truth about Christ, showing others the love of Jesus Christ, training others how to walk with Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that we will do this as a church, that we will really buy into this understanding that it, this is so much bigger than any one person, than any staff, than any group of elders. It's bigger than you and me, and that's what gives it so much beauty and so much uh, satisfaction in being part of something bigger than ourselves. Amen. And So as we get ready to close out, I just want to encourage you guys to resolve to seek the kingdom first, to resolve to be more zealous for God's glory than our own name. And we trust that God will always take care of the rest. I hope and pray no matter where you are today, if you have uh, need of prayer, maybe you um, need counsel, maybe that you want to know more about being a member of this church, I want to encourage you to please take this time to do that as we sing. And um, we're always here for counsel here up front. And so, Um, You guys move as the Lord leads at this time. Would you do that? Let's all stand together as we pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Uh, Father, I thank you for uh, allowing us to be a a part of something bigger than ourselves. And that, Lord, we have nothing to boast in but Christ and him crucified. So keep us humble, God, and allow us to always remember that you and you alone are worthy of all honor, worthy, and worship.